Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Little Oracles podcast, an oracle for the everyday creative. I'm Allison Arth. So how's everybody doing today? To be honest with you, I am a little off balance. I'm realizing we're almost in March, and I'm looking back on some moments over the last couple of months that really carry a lot of weight for me and for people I care about. And I've been reading a lot about grief and loss. If you recall, our February reading theme was Grief is a Ghost, Heartbreak, Hope, and Spiritual Salvage. And so I've been sitting with some pretty heavy feelings and honestly, some really sobering experiences. And, you know, as is my want as a writer and a creator, I've been writing around these weighty things and to them in my own work and I've been trying and struggling to find words that could maybe soothe or express properly or just give voice to these feelings that I don't think I've ever been able to put a name to or a series of names to or that I felt I've been able to capture or contain or really define. And when I started thinking about that, about my inability to accurately or more like satisfactorily, at least to myself, uh, encapsulate those feelings, I started interrogating, not the feelings necessarily, but the demarcation words in and of themselves. Those words that we use to talk about collections of words that attempt to communicate things. Words like name and capture and contain and define and encapsulate. So when I say I'm trying to capture an emotion or contain a feeling in something I've written, those words are boxes, you know? They're fences. They build those walls around other words and describe in the literal, almost cartographical sense, space and meaning. And so I started spinning out what these demarcation words imply or connote, and I realized that they all feel so private and so self-serving and even colonialist and paternalistic to me. I mean, just think about the concept of capturing or containing or encapsulating an emotion or a moment. Those words, at their most mild, they suggest, you know, a holding, but at their most wild, and I use that rhyme with a lot of intent here, they suggest caging and confining and circumscribing. They suggest imposed limits and bounds, and I'm just not really feeling that, honestly. I want to communicate. I don't want to isolate. I want to share. I don't want to, I don't know, salt the earth. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so this got me thinking about how I might shift the way I approach writing about a big thing, something like grief or love or rage or sadness, because I thought that if I could revise the way I perceive or look at these things, like, you know, maybe moonwalk into them instead of charging at them like a berserker, that kind of thing, then I could find a new way in and those words that communicate and I could find a pathway to empathy and shared experience that I haven't really been able to access before. Because 
that's really what we're trying to do here as writers and creators and makers and, you know, just humans. Like, we're trying to find ways and modes to share the fullness of our feeling and the fullness of our being and just of existing here together on planet Earth. So when I'm trying to find or pinpoint or sneak up on a word or a perfect phrase to really communicate and share and paint that picture of a feeling or an emotion, I do this thing, this literal physical thing. So I hold my hands in front of me and you can't see me, but I'm, I'm doing this right now. It's like I'm holding an invisible Rubik's cube and I twist my hands in counterpoint, you know, in opposite directions, one away from me and one toward me. Like I'm trying to wring the words out of the air just in front of my heart. And I did this motion for a while, you know, trying to uncover some of the other ways of looking at looking, so to speak. I was trying to identify words that are essentially synonymous with words like container or encapsulation, but were more expansive and open and spacious and welcoming quite frankly, and that would help me reimagine or reframe the big emotions and thereby help me communicate and share them in a better and more compassionate way. So as I was doing this, I stumbled into words like reliquary, which we touched on in episode three, and which I really love for its connotations of age and depth and almost primeval embodiment. And also the word vessel, which I really love too for its inherent transience or liminality, as in like a sailing vessel that moves around. I also like the qualities of vessel for fullness. So, you know, a vessel can exist at varying states of being full or part full or empty. And I, I love that. It's kind of shifting and changing and the community is implied in the partaking of whatever's in the vessel and refilling the vessel and there's a lot of sharing that happens with that but then after some time after I'd sat with those words for a little while and after I'd turned my hands in front of me in my air puzzle just a little bit more I landed on a word that opened and also drew together and it held so much in its etymology and its cultural significance. And I'm just so interested in exploring it as a philosophical or conceptual or inspirational springboard for my creative work. And as the knit is to the pearl, <laughs> to our ABC reading theme for March too, I feel like this word applies to so many things. And the word, my dear friends, is stitch. So hear me out. Hear me out here because I realize this uh, lexical rabbit hole just kind of took a bit of an Alice in Wonderland turn. Like, how do you get from capture to stitch? But let me start by saying words matter, okay? They really do. We inherit language and patterns of speech that construct and reflect the world as the culture that we live in sees it, right? It's both implicit and covert. There are so many isms encoded in everyday speech, and most of us are really immune to them. So an easy example, can you think of a male-coded analog that has as much pejorative mass as the word spinster? 
you could say bachelor, right? But it's not pejorative. It's actually kind of freewheeling and fun. And I don't think that there is an analog that is gendered in the way that spinster is. So all that to say, all of us can put in the work to do things like excising harmful speech, destigmatizing mental illness by replacing words like insane and crazy with less ableist language, like unbelievable or ridiculous, those kinds of things. Or we can replace gendered language. We can say chair or chairperson instead of the default chairman. And we can reclaim and resignify derogatory words within our various and intersecting communities, right? Words like queer has been reclaimed by the queer community in a really beautiful way. So words matter. And the cool thing is we can change them. You know, we can re-regard them and reinvent them and refashion them in ways that are more compassionate and collective and community focused. And that's really kind of what I'm trying to do here, because we can recontextualize the way we go about communicating and the way we embark on creative journeys, if you will, the way we can reframe our creativity to make something that doesn't just confine or define or fence in but instead it speaks and it carries and it weaves together and so that's where we come to stitch so the history of stitch and its beautiful balance of meaning and connotation is so rich so this word exists in one form or another across so many languages we're talking old english we're talking a whole passel of Germanic languages. We're talking Greek and Latin and Old Persian in related words, which we now know as stick. Stick and stitch have very, very similar roots. So in its oldest forms, and I'm talking like a thousand years ago, the various words across the various languages that gave us the word stitch, they were concerned with pain. So stabbing, pricking, piercing, stinging. And that makes sense, right? Even and especially now, I think, because stitching, whether we're talking in the fiber craft sense or the medical sense, which were piled onto the words around the 1200s and the late 1500s, respectively, stitching is done with a needle and needles are sharp. They stab, they prick, they pierce, and they sting. And sidebar, I've named two famous fictional swords in like the last five seconds. Stitches run very deep. <laughs> and at the same time, this word suggests a drawing together. So we've got our piercing and our stabbing and our pain. And we've also got mending and weaving and communing and coming together. So we stitch a wound to help it heal. We stitch a quilt to warm the ones we love. We even stitch a TikTok to create a conversation between two, three, 20, 30 disparate and unrelated people. So at its essence, to stitch is to perform an act of compassion and an act of empathy and an act of community. And to tie the thread back to the top, if I'm trying to make something that truly communicates and invites another person in to share the emotion or the feeling or the experience, why wouldn't I think of that? as stitching. Maybe it'll pierce or it'll sting at first, but hopefully it'll do more than that in its expression. It'll draw us closer. It'll weave a deeper meaning. It's the quilt to warm someone. It's the wound and the healing all in one. 
You know, like Carol King said, you've got to take the bitter with the sweet, right? Because that's life. It's all in the stitches. And that brings us to our March ABC theme, which I'm calling A Stitch in Time, Mindfulness, Memory, and Living in the Aftermath. Because I've been thinking about the concept of the stitch as a pathway to compassion and communication, especially as I'm walking through some very real, very big crucible moments with close friends and members of my personal community, and I'm trying to offer that consolation or extend that empathy or even just a little bit of amelioration for them, I'm really drawn to this idea of the stitch as not only a metaphor for coming together and caring for another person, but also as a marker or maybe a memorial, something that stays like a scar after surgical stitches or a stitch in a scarf your great-grandmother made, something that by its very existence invites remembrance or mindfulness. And so this month, let's read Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, a novel very deeply steeped in time and memory, and this will be our core book for the month of March. And I'm also going to add Stay True by Hua Su, a memoir about Su's coming of age and coming into his own at Berkeley and his relationship with another student who was tragically murdered. So Kirkus says that Su's voice shimmers with tenderness and vulnerability as he meticulously reconstructs his memories of a nurturing, compassionate friendship. And I'm also going to add Ghost Forest by Pik Xuan Feng. This is a novel about a young Chinese-Canadian woman who is struggling with the death of her father and tries to connect in her grief with her mother and grandmother. So Feng herself said she wanted to write a book that feels really spacious and expansive so that readers had a space to grieve not only the loss of loved ones or the losses through generations, but also the losses that result from immigration. And I think that's just such a beautiful way to approach a book. And I'm really looking forward to reading it. So those are our books for March. I hope you'll join me in reading one of them or maybe something else you're inspired to read that feels like a stitch to you or something that feels like it taps into compassion or memory or community in some way. So thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. I've got more little reviews coming up and some fun creative conversations. If you like what you're listening to, I invite you to leave a review. It really helps this podcast grow. You can follow along for more big book energy and creative content at Little Oracles on Instagram or on the blog at littleoracles.com. And as always, take care, keep creating, and stay divine.